This is a podcast by The Straits Times. This is Asian Insider, and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, after 20 years of war, in August 2021, the United States became the most recent superpower to be seen off by Afghanistan. After the U.S. withdrew, the Taliban, whom the United States had kicked out in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks, very promptly came right back to power. But since then, the Taliban has challenged the status of the Afghan-Pakistan border and given haven to the anti-Pakistan insurgent group Tehreek-e-Taliban-Pakistan, TTP, also known as the Pakistani Taliban, which has killed hundreds, thousands of Pakistanis and wants to establish a Taliban-style Sharia state in Pakistan. So Pakistan has seen a lot of attacks by the TTP. The TTP has sanctuaries in Afghanistan. Pakistan has even struck at the TTP across the border. Pakistan's government has been negotiating with the Taliban to deny the TTP its sanctuary in Afghanistan. No progress on that front. Separately, but related, the Islamic State Khorasan province, ISKP, has been carrying out major attacks on the Taliban and, in fact, on Chinese citizens in Kabul. The latest, a massive bomb blast in Kabul on January 11, targeting the foreign ministry. Now, to help explain and assess what is going on in this really tangled knot, I have joining me today Javed Ahmed, non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center, a former ambassador of Afghanistan to the United Arab Emirates, and also previously a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, focusing on security, counterterrorism, and so forth. And Bill Roggio, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy and editor of the Foundation's Long War Journal, which reports and analyzes the U.S.'s global war on terror, covering, of course, among others, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on Asian Insider. Good to see both of you. Thank you very much. Great to see you. So, Javed, if I may start with you, the TTP is in effect at war with the Pakistani state. The Taliban says ISKP has bases in Pakistan. Millions of Afghans are refugees spilling over its borders. Which way is this going? Does this risk deepening into a much wider conflict? And how much space is there really to return to negotiating tables for all these parties? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks, Nirma. Great to be here with you and Bill. Um, the TTP is a classic case of reverse insurgency, only this time it's threatening the Pakistani state and not necessarily the Taliban government or the Afghan government. And so over the past few months, we have seen some tensions between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistanis, more on the surface level, mainly over the Pakistani demands that the Afghan Taliban go after the TTP inside uh, Afghanistan. But the question is, why would the Taliban do that? You know, I think what the Pakistani leaders are ignoring in their own crisis marketing is that the TTP is the Afghan Taliban's ideological sibling. And even though several TTP spinoffs and breakaway factions have since merged under the current TTP leader, it's still not a monolithic organization. So, uh, you know, they have you know, a vast number of tactical partnerships and loose transactional alliances with groups like Al-Qaeda, with ISIS-K, with ETIM, with uh, Uzbekistan's IMU, uh, several Baloch groups, but also with scores of unaffiliated fighters. And so from the look of it, the Afghan Taliban don't have the kind of bandwidth or resources in all of these groups. And we should also not forget that the Afghan Taliban's takeover has in turn provided a practical victory template for the TTP themselves. And, and they believe 
that if the Afghan Taliban managed to secure their own Sharia-based emirate in Afghanistan, so could the TTP in Pakistan. I think the Pakistanis unfortunately played their own historically deceitful hand uh, during their talks with the TTP, and they acted in a very bad faith. I think they used the dialogue with the TTP as a trap to effectively lure senior TTP operational leaders and operational commanders out of their caves into the negotiating table only to target and kill many of them during or immediately after the talks. And so for each of these killings, the Pakistanis have naturally claimed plausible deniability, but the TTP leaders are also not like no fools. So they, like, they see it and they sense it. And so here, I think it would be also foolish for the Pakistani leaders now going forward to again expect any divine intervention from the Afghan Taliban to engage or re-engage the TTP again. In this final point, I think inside Pakistan, many today believe that the Pakistani military is in a pre-war stage with the TTP, and uh, the TTP have already been on the military offensive since last April. But if this war picks up, I think the Pakistani army would naturally prefer to fight it inside Afghanistan rather than uh, inside Pakistan. And I don't think it will play well with the Afghan Taliban, who are you know, working to consolidate their own power to rule. Very complicated. Bill Rojo, thanks for uh, patiently waiting. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, and specifically, what are the risks in terms of terrorism by groups from Al-Qaeda to the Islamic State going forward to the U.S. and its allies? And one should include India in that. The U.S. says it maintains over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability. Is that good enough? Yeah, so first I want to address the issue of the TTP. This is a, a really a creation or the Pakistani state its elites, uh, the, the state within a state, the, the military leaders, the intelligence leaders and government officials who seek strategic depth within Afghanistan uh, against India. And they, that's, that was the reason for their support for the Afghan Taliban. Well, the Afghan Taliban supports the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban, of course, turns around and attacks the Pakistani state. The Pakistani state is well aware of this relationship. Remember, the emir of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan swears allegiance to Taliban's, to Afghan Taliban's emir, Habiatullah Akhundzada. The Pakistanis are well aware of this. The, the Afghan Taliban, while it's sheltered inside of uh, Pakistan, supported the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. The movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, or TTP, supported uh, the Afghan Taliban's insurgency inside of Afghanistan. The, uh, the Pakistani state is well aware of this. and. You know, so it's a very cynical calculation. I call this the wheel of jihad, and it keeps on turning. The Pakistanis, if it wants to stop this insurgency by the TTP, it needs to end its support for the Afghan Taliban, but it's not willing to do that because it's that strategic depth is far more important. And think of just how cynical this is. The Pakistani state complains that it's suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties from the TTP, and yet it supports the group. That, that props it up. Now, to your question about the risks of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State to both well, regionally as well as against the United States and India, the risk from Al-Qaeda is greater than any point. I would argue it's greater today than it was prior to 9-11. Today, the Afghan Taliban is in full control of Afghanistan. Resistance is nascent at best. The Afghan Taliban has all of the equipment, billions of dollars in U.S. hardware, military equipment, the basing, ammunition, the fuel that was left behind, training bases, things things of that regards. And that relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban has been forged in decades of blood and fire 
while fighting against the U.S. and the West inside of Afghanistan. The Taliban isn't going to abandon al-Qaeda. It never was going to. This was a fantasy. Um, remember, when the deal was signed, uh, then U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claimed that the Taliban would put this in quotes, destroy al-Qaeda. That's what he claimed. There's been zero targeting of al-Qaeda by the Afghan Taliban. And as a matter of fact, of course, as we all know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the emir, uh, the last emir of al-Qaeda, was killed in Kabul while sheltering in a safe house run by Sirajuddin Haqqani, who's the interior minister, and as well as one of two deputy emirs of the Afghan Taliban. So al-Qaeda has safe haven, and it has all the support of the Taliban and, and the state that exists. As far as the Islamic State goes, I, I view this as a tertiary threat. It really is fighting for its survival. It's um, it's what it's doing now, the Islamic State Khorasan province, as it's known, is it's conducting one-off attacks against the Pakistani state, or I'm sorry, against the Afghan Taliban. Um, it's really more of in a harassment mode. The, the, the Islamic State, it doesn't play well with others. To your question about over-the-horizon the counterterrorism operations, there's been one over-the-horizon strike. And really, it wasn't even launched by the U.S. military. It was by the CIA. And that was the raid that killed um, al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. We know that there are other al-Qaeda leaders. Um, the man who is thought to be succeeding, uh, Zawahiri Saif al-Adil, uh, who was sheltering inside of Iran, is thought to be inside of Afghanistan. And I've tracked several other top uh, al-Qaeda leaders, including Abdul Haq al-Turkistani, who's the head of the, um, the Turkestan Islamic Party, U.S. Treasury, uh, identified him as being a, a leader on al-Qaeda's uh, central council. This was all, way, all the way back in 2007, I believe. He and others, other uh, followers, recorded a video last May from Afghanistan celebrating the, ta uh, the Taliban's victory. So... And I want to keep this in mind, the last point on the over-the-horizon counterterrorism operations. In December of 2021, after the U.S. withdrew, um, General McKenzie, who at the time was, he was the last uh, CENTCOM commander, U.S. Central Command, um, Central Command, he said that the U.S. intelligence was reduced to 1% to 2% of uh, visibility inside of Afghanistan. And U.S. visibility, while it was in Af Afghanistan, wasn't very good. The U.S. intelligence claimed that there were, for six straight years that there were 50 to 100 al-Qaeda leaders um, inside of and, and operatives inside of Afghanistan and that they were decimated, defeated, dead, pick your D word, degraded. And then lo and behold, in late 2015, the U.S. conducted a raid in Kandahar province that killed almost 200 al-Qaeda leaders and operatives in an area where the U.S. claimed uh, al-Qaeda wasn't even operating. So that's how good U.S. intelligence was while we were there. Now that the U.S. is gone, I, you know, the intelligence is nominal at best. It was good enough to get Zawahiri. He's a high-value target and a high-profile target. But Al-Qaeda, other Al-Qaeda leaders are operating there um, from now. It's a threat to India. It's a threat to Pakistan. It's, it's a threat to the world uh, in general. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Yeah, good point about the intelligence, I have to say, yeah. Uh, Javed, sh slightly shifting to this Chinese aspect. It is Chinese who have been repeatedly targeted in Afghanistan by the ISKP. Uh, one would presume that Afghanistan wants Chinese development assistance, investment, and so forth. Where does China stand in all of this? And is it going to be 
increasingly involved? First of all, inside the Taliban, there's an imbalance and a concentration of uh, political and military power. The military power is, of course, concentrated in the hands of the Haqqanis. Uh, the political and ideological power is concentrated in the uh, hands of the ideologues in Kandahar. And China has a very vague relationship with, with both of these uh, Taliban power centers. And so what I'll also underscore here is that these Taliban power centers arguably have a very different relationship with groups like ISIS-K, uh, meaning that the Taliban ideologues or their you know, politicals are opposed to them. But when you refer to the Haqqanis, they've enjoyed uh, historically you know, loose partnership with them. But look, you know, as, um, as Bill mentioned, the, uh, the ISIS-K is neither a statistical outlier nor a bottom feeder in that country. Their overall approach is quite very uh, simple. Undermine confidence in the Taliban's assurance of security. And, f- and for them to do so, it takes very little. You know, an explosion here, an explosion there, target whomever the Taliban are trying to get closer to, like the Chinese. But the China-Taliban relationship is not a partnership of equals, you know, um, uh, unlike uh, Afghanistan's other five neighbors. The Taliban or uh, Afghans in general, they have nothing in common with China. You know, we for, for too long, the Chinese viewed Afghanistan as an, an uncharted territory. And even today, with its, you know, a somewhat, uh, you know, modest diplomatic presence uh, in Kabul and their direct engagement with and support to the Haqqani Taliban, the Taliban don't necessarily see the Chinese as a driving force behind uh, the Afghan or the Taliban economy. But the Taliban, for their own reason, they will engage with anybody including the Chinese, uh, and they will talk to them. But historically, the Chinese have overpromised Afghans in Afghanistan, but they have neither delivered at all or they have underdelivered. So in, even today, for example, the China-Taliban oil and gas contracts that, that was recently uh, signed between the two sides, they follow a very unequal revenue sharing uh, arrangement in which uh, the Chinese contractually receive uh, 80% of the generated revenues, not the Taliban. Or another example, uh, we have seen the Chinese in April of 2022, I believe, how they launched the Tunchi Initiative, uh, which involved all of Afghanistan's uh, neighbors plus Russia to help with the humanitarian efforts. But we haven't seen any large-scale assistance from the Chinese delivered to Afghanistan or to the Taliban. Uh, they have now also promised the Taliban to bring Afghanistan into the CPIC, which is you know the flagship BRI projects. Uh, it, you know they've removed. Uh, tariffs on import Afghan goods, they're building industrial park, uh, they've signed multiple MOUs, including on oil and gas, as I mentioned. And I think at some point to protect these and other interests, we're likely to see the Chinese nudging and pushing the Taliban to allow Chinese private military and security contractors to deploy to Afghanistan. But I think for now, uh, as I see it, the Chinese are uh, still playing it quite safe. All in all, uh, uh, how I see is, is that the Taliban view the Chinese model of cooperation in the form of non-interference in each other's affairs. And, and you know, we have seen the Taliban ha- haven't said anything about the Chinese treatment of Uyghurs, for example, which is sort of a tacit Taliban endorsement of, of China's own internal so-called anti-terrorism policies. And the Chinese have also reciprocated those sentiments. After al-Zawahiri strike, the Chinese now former foreign minister openly accused the United States of, you know, I quote, I think he said, adopting double standards in U.S. counterterrorism operations and that uh, the United States should not be conducting any of such 
attacks at the cost of uh, other countries' sovereignty. So it remains to be seen as how the Chinese uh, play the Taliban, but whatever it is the Chinese uh, will actually do for the Taliban remains to be seen. Right. Bill, circling back to you just for a moment, back to security and Pakistan. Former PM Imran Khan was saying the other day that if Afghanistan stopped cooperating with Pakistan, it would lead to a never-ending war against terrorism. And you made the remark on Twitter, I think, saying continuation of ties would lead to a never-ending alliance with terrorism. Tell me a little bit about what are the stakes as you see as you see them for Pakistan. Yeah, this gets back to the issue of the wheel of jihad, right? The Pakistani state knows that the Afghan Taliban supports the TTP. And you know, this, this is that cynic, cynical calculation. And I think the stakes for Pakistan are great. We have to remember that TTP insurgency that existed or when it was extremely hot from, I would say, about 2007 to about 2014. The, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan controlled significant portions of what was then called the Northwest Frontier Province, which is now Khyber Pakhtunma Province. Uh, it controlled multiple districts as well as all of the tribal agencies. Uh, there were, and, and it used this as a base to conduct attacks in all of the provinces within, within Pakistan. There were attacks in Lahore and Karachi, in Rawalpindi, even, you know, the assault on general headquarters, uh, suicide attacks everywhere, intelligence and military and government officials targeted, uh, the targeting and killing of Benazir Bhutto, right? It was a, a major problem. The Pakistani state was extremely weak at this time. It was a very fluid situation. And at the time, the Pakistanis had the support of the United States, which was providing billions of dollars a year, $30 billion total during that time span, and providing military aid. It was also targeting TTP leaders and Al-Qaeda leaders and all everyone in that constellation who were fighting against the Pakistani state, the IMU leaders, most of them in North and South Waziristan, but through, but in other areas as well. The, that, um, that U.S. Uh, drone campaign does not exist anymore. The Pakistanis, if it allows the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan to um, expand its insurgency as it did 15 years ago. This can be a major, major problem for the Pakistani state. Again, um, you know, look, the Chinese keep the Pakistanis at, at arm's length. I can't see the Chinese coming in to help like the U.S. did um, a decade plus ago. Uh, the Pakistan, you know, then there's the issue of nuclear weapons, right? The movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and Al-Qaeda and other groups were targeting Pakistani nuclear weapons facilities, manufacturing plants, and, and, um, and even encroaching on storage locations. The, you know, this, uh, a direct threat to the Pakistani state. So, the irony in all of this, right, is that the Pakistani state seeks strategic depth in Afghanistan, but actually creates a strategic weakness, the strategic depth to be used against India. And yet it grinds down its military fighting the TTP, which is receiving support from Afghanistan. Okay, the United Nations estimates that a staggering two-thirds of Afghanistan's uh, population, 28.3 million going forward, need humanitarian aid and protection. And what has happened to women, of course, is a catastrophe. We're almost out of time, but uh, Javed, may I have a last word from you on that aspect? What can be done and what can't be done for the people of Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the Afghan women are bravely uh, struggling on multiple fronts in this, you know, minoritarian Taliban tyranny. And uh, we've seen how... Um, after the Taliban announced their so-called general amnesty, they didn't say that the amnesty had certain exceptions, like 
targeting former Afghan security personnel or settling personal scores or even going after women activists. Uh, and even though the women protests that's happening right now or, you know, in in the near past were relatively smaller in size, but because their voices were louder and because they have, you know, attracted broader international support and regional support, it worried the Taliban and continues to worry the Taliban today. And even though it concerns them, but at the end of the day, the Taliban don't really care and, and they would do exactly what they want. So on what can be done uh, or cannot be done, it's, uh, it's very difficult to prescribe a solution for a country that is practically a graveyard of ideas and sort of a cesspool of even worse outcomes. So, but I would advise that we do not constrain ourselves in our own approaches. First, I think uh, Afghans shouldn't expect any direct U.S. engagement. That will not happen, um, certainly not under this uh, uh, U.S. administration. We may see some targeted push from the Republican Congress, but it will be limited in nature, and I think its impact will also be negligible. Plus, it's also not uh, the United States' job to prescribe solutions for Afghans. I think that onus falls on, on our own shoulder. Some humanitarian assistance will, of course, continue, and we may also see some indirect development assistance sent to Afghanistan to ensure that Taliban maintains some you know, macroeconomic and currency stability. But the number of contenders for such an aid or assistance have also grown. I mean, some are right here next door in Haiti. So I think it will be wise to focus not just on the price tag of any future assistance to that country and instead focus on the value of what it buys. But one important thing that can be done in the meantime, uh, in my view, is that uh, for Washington to diversify its approach towards the Taliban's powerful clerics in Kandahar without legitimizing them, of course, and, and, and to begin engaging in low-key, low-visibility dialogues. I think it's these clerics, these powerful clerics in Kandahar who wield power. These, it's these clerics who command legitimacy. You know, these are the guys who make the decisions. And they're also the ones who, you know, increasingly implement those decisions. But unfortunately, the, the, the absence of a direct dialogue, uh, however low key, with these powerful clerics has increasingly limited, you know, America's own options, America's own choices. So again, we need to kind of creatively engage in these low key dialogues with these men in Kandahar in order to understand their own religious priorities within which, you know, they might be persuaded towards, you know, some easing of uh, these restrictions that they have placed uh, on, on Afghan women and others, and perhaps even uh, start an inclusive national dialogue. Okay. Bill Rocho, Javed Ahmed, thank you very much for joining me on Asian Insider. Thank you. Thank you. So that nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.